Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is It Legal 2? A look at the legal system and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. The month of May starts with Law Day, a day proclaimed by the American Bar Association to celebrate the rule of law and to call public attention to the way the law and the legal process protects our liberty, strives to achieve justice, and contributes to the freedoms that all of us share. This year's theme seems particularly appropriate. Free press, free speech, free society. But these two rights are complicated by competing understandings of them and debates about who should exercise them and in what way. We are joined today by someone who can help us understand the necessity of these rights and ongoing arguments about how absolute those rights are. Larissa Liskey is the dean of the University of Missouri School of Law. She is a respected First Amendment scholar, particularly in the fields of defamation and other free speech issues related to social media. Ah, social media, the new frontiers of First Amendment issues. Some see social media as having no limits on expression, no responsibility for truth. Others see it as their most reliable source of information and the greatest connection ever with family and friends. So we're going to explore that and other issues today. Welcome to our program, Dean Litsky. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Before we dive into present day issues surrounding the First Amendment, I thought we should maybe start at the beginning. And I wanted to ask you, why do you think the founders included free speech and free press in the very First Amendment to the Constitution? Well, so with respect to freedom of the press, it's very important in a democracy to have a watchdog on government. In fact, uh, the press is sometimes called the fourth estate which means that it's almost like an unofficial fourth branch of government in the system of checks and balances that keeps watch over the other three and tells us what our representatives are doing so that we can vote the rascals out if necessary. So the role of the press is a very important one in a democracy uh, to, to be the link between us and our representatives. Uh, freedom of speech is serves lots of different values, uh, individual self-fulfillment, discovery of truth, um, self-governance, allowing us to be a self-governing people. Uh, there are lots of different justifications that, that are asserted to justify the rights that are under the umbrella of the First Amendment. When it comes to press, which you first talked about, who is the press? Uh, Bob's sitting here with me and he was a dean of the Capitol Press Corps and very much played the important role that you just explained. But in today's day and age, who is considered the press under the Constitution or the law? Well, that question used to be easier to answer than it is today in a lot of ways. Um, so the there's the institutional press, which are the big media operations like the New York Times or the Washington Post or NBC or CBS. And those are what we think of traditionally when we think of the press in, say, the 1960s and 70s. Those were the people that performed that watchdog role on the government. We think of Watergate and uh, a presidency brought down by press, uh, uh, by its own corruption and press scrutiny that revealed that corruption to us. Now it's not so easy uh, a lot of us can perform functions traditionally associated with the press. Uh, so, for example, I can disseminate my views to a mass audience using Twitter. Um, you know, if I, if I want to reach my Twitter audience, suddenly I can reach thousands of people with very little effort. What I would say is that, that we're fortunate to have so many sources of information in, in many, many ways 
but we still need somebody systematically looking to gather information, particularly information about the government and its goings on. If we might look at this a little bit historically, Dean, I, I, I was going back over a book that I like to look at every now and then by uh, uh, Akhil Rita Marr called America's Unwritten Constitution that I really enjoy looking at from time to time. And he makes the point that our First Amendment, our whole Constitution, comes out of an era in America that was just full of vigorous uh, communication, vigorous discussion about the political standards of the day and the social standards of the day. And he claims that the First Amendment actually uh, didn't really establish anything so much as as it protected what had already begun to exist in this country, which was significantly different than what happened from in Britain. Well, I think that's very true. So so one of the reasons that we have a press clause, a a clause protecting freedom of the press in our First Amendment is that there were press clauses in the state constitutions leading up to the federal constitution. And that's because there were, there were printers very vigorously using their freedom of speech and freedom of the press to criticize government officials. And uh, in, in Britain, you could sue someone for libel if they criticize the government because the idea is bringing the government into disrepute, bringing the king into disrepute, impaired the king's ability to govern. And it was often said, the greater the truth, the greater the libel. In a democracy, the power is no longer vested in a king, it's vested in the people. And so the people not only have a right, but a duty to criticize those who govern them. So a very different sensibility was developing in the colonies uh, as as a result, Uh, you know, much more iconoclastic and much more freedom to criticize uh, the governors. And that, that stems, I guess, uh, those of us in the press like to look at John Peter Zenger and his famous case in the early Absolutely. 1700s as, as, a re, as a reversal of that British standard. Yeah, the, Z- the Zinger case is a very important case from uh, the colonial U.S. because it was a victory for the jury. Um, the, the jury had been told, uh, if, this, if this printer criticized the governor, then you should convict, that all you have to find out is whether he published and they argued that the jury should have a right to see if the criticism was legitimate or if, if the printer should be punished for the criticism. So it was a victory for people, essentially, in saying that the jury got to, to uh, decide those issues. And I really, one of the things I think is really interesting about the Zinger case is then the jury was considered the bulwark of protection for freedom of the press, the common people understood and were the protection for press freedom. I just wonder, you know, today, do we think of that in the same way? Well, I think there's a a pretty good sentiment among part of the country that at least uh, uh, a lot of the common people, as we might put it, uh, would probably prefer to have some rather severe limits on some of the press. I think that's right. I think that's right. And, you know, I think polls, polls show that people are pretty dissatisfied with the overall level of press coverage of government affairs. And uh, there's, of course, been campaigns to say it's all fake news. And I, I wonder if people today fully appreciate the role of the press in telling us what our government is doing. I think, you know, the counter argument is people would say, well, the press is not performing the same role. The, the press has always been um, 
you know, the, the press has always abused its privileges at times throughout our history. Even James Madison, James Madison famously said, some degree of abuse is inseparable from the use of every, every right, and nowhere is that more true than of the press. Do the values of the First Amendment mean that we should let ideas that we disagree with, or even hateful ideas, be stifled only in the marketplace of ideas? Um, you know, I think back to Voltaire, who said, I detest what you write, but I would give my life to make it possible for you to continue to write. Yeah, so the theory of our First Amendment is that with regard to most speech with which we disagree, even speech that can be considered hateful or hate speech, that the proper remedy for that is not government suppression of that speech. The, property, the proper remedy is counter speech. In other words, we as citizens, when we hear something we think is wrong or we think is hateful that we disagree with, it's our obligation to come forward and point out why in the marketplace of ideas. And that's how truth will emerge from that marketplace of ideas. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into common English. Judge? Legalese. We Americans love to argue. We must love it because we do so much of it. Even those whose grandparents cautioned us not to discuss religion or politics in polite company. We tend to believe in our form of government, but do we trust our government? Not so much if you believe current polls. Was it always this way? Congress in 1789 submitted to the state legislatures 12 amendments to the new U.S. Constitution adopted two years earlier. The states approved 10 of these amendments, which we call the Bill of Rights, which restrict the power of government and recognize that the people have rights that we regard as fundamental. The preamble to the Bill of Rights tells us that a number of states, when ratifying the U.S. Constitution, expressed a desire in order to prevent abuse of its powers that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added to, quote, extend the ground of public confidence in the government, close quote, uh, public confidence. The First Amendment protects from government interference the right of free speech, religious freedom, freedom of the press, and the right of the people peaceably to assemble and petition the government for a redress of grievances. Protection of these rights is a safety valve. When the safety valve is missing or doesn't work, people take to the streets, peaceably or not. 30 years ago this month, I was in China in the provincial capital of Chengdu. I witnessed demonstrations that led to government violence to suppress the demonstrators. We heard by radio of the government violence at Tiananmen Square in Beijing, where hundreds, perhaps thousands, were killed by government soldiers. This led briefly to massive demonstrations in the city where I was staying. The protesters were angry about the suppression of speech and ideas. They were protesting government corruption. Those two things are related, by the way. The authoritarian government's response over the past 30 years is to allow greater economic freedom. This has created great economic advances and some personal freedom. But free speech, not so much. In our country, we continue to argue about absolute versus reasonable restrictions on that right. The right to free speech, Justice Holmes famously observed 100 years ago, does not extend to shouting fire in a crowded theater. We have, of course, been misusing the quote for 100 years now. Nothing keeps you from shouting fire in a crowded theater, but if you shout falsely and cause injury, it's hard to imagine that the First Amendment protects you. But what restrictions on speech are allowable? What about corporations? Do they have the right to free speech? The Founding Fathers did not say. Is campaign money a form of speech? 
The founding fathers did not say, if the free speech protects campaign money, does free speech thereby protect the corruption of government by the economically powerful? We can argue about that. Does the First Amendment protect those who libel? We can argue about that too. If we grow, grow weary of arguing about the First Amendment, we can move to the Second Amendment. No consistency needed, of course. Does the Second Amendment guarantee absolute protection? Or does it allow reasonable restrictions as to time, place, and manner, as are sometimes recognized as to speech? If the government can require you to get a license to drive your car, can it require a license to own and use a gun? The Founding Fathers did not say, but they did leave us some language about a well-regulated militia. We can argue about that, because arguing, not baseball, is our national pastime. You agree with me, don't you? Legalese. So with today's digital age, it seems like it would give us the avenue for those ideas and that marketplace to work and the truth to rise to the top, if you will. Um, but we don't always see that being the case. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about social media. So are the social media companies, for those of us who have accounts on everything from Facebook and Instagram to Twitter or Snapchat, even YouTube, they have their content and privacy policies that we agree to when we sign up and accept the terms of service. So are there standards that they're censoring us by different than what our rights are under the First Amendment? Uh, they are. They definitely are. So the First Amendment only protects us from government censorship of our speech. And we have a First Amendment right whenever, whenever our speech has been suppressed by government, but not when our speech is suppressed by Facebook. And so Facebook or Twitter or the other social media companies are allowed to apply whatever standards they choose because they're private companies that we've chosen to encounter. Now, just because you don't have a First Amendment right doesn't mean that you can't protest the policies that these companies are enacting, uh, particularly given how powerful they are. Isn't a lot of the controversy right now over Facebook and, and something that, that you referred to a minute ago, isn't that the marketplace for freedom of speech or freedom of expression at work? Well, this is, this is really a, a, a conundrum in terms or, or a problem for First Amendment theory is because it's assumed that most communications will be uh, in a marketplace of ideas and that the person who's going to be censoring is, is government. But here we have censors such as Google. So we have no constitutional protections against censorship by Google. Now, what, what you do have is how did these companies get to control such a big slice of the, the real practical marketplace of ideas? How did they get a monopoly on such a big slice of the arena where we communicate with one another? You can look at their market power and start to limit their market power uh, through other mechanisms, but the First Amendment is not the right answer for that. What does it mean that these private for-profit companies have so much power to control speech <coughs> that is critical to a free society? What are the broader implications there? Well, I do think there are broad implications. Um, so, for example, one of the things that I think it's imperative that we as citizens demand is that these companies be transparent in what it is that they are censoring. Um, so I would like to know exactly what kind of speech Facebook determines it's going to take down. Is it taking it down even handedly? We've seen instances on Facebook 
where fake news proliferated because of the way its algorithm was operating, it can be very dangerous to democracy to allow that to continue. Facebook is very alarming in, in terms of the lack of transparency as to what uh, they are censoring and not censoring. And we don't have the First Amendment as a tool to control that. Is there any way that I, as a social media user, I have the power to communicate with so many thousands or even millions of people from a single tweet or a post? Um, is there anything that allows that same protection of speech and press rights to extend to me as an individual? Absolutely. When you when you tweet, you have essentially the same level of First Amendment protection as the New York Times. Uh, now, the caveat is that you also face liability in the same way the New York Times does for tweets that are defamatory, for example. And so you do have tremendous protection when you're using social media but that protection is by no means absolute. So let's dive into that. I think the average social media user doesn't realize that they could ultimately be held liable for sharing something that may be untrue that they didn't know was untrue. Or um, it, And if you could also, first off, explain what defamation really is. It's not just being critical of someone, but being um, inaccurate in that criticism. Is that correct? Okay, so defamation is a term that includes libel and slander. And libel is usually used to refer to written defamation and slander to spoken defamation. And so defamation is speech that tends to harm reputation. And when you engage in speech that tends to harm reputation, you can end up being held liable to them in damages. And so you need to think before you tweet, because if you tweet some something that could tend to harm somebody else's reputation, you could end up paying a money judgment for that. So going back to liabilities, essentially, if I slander someone, or I guess it would be liable since I'm typing yeah, it's it. it's usually treated as liable. <laughs> yeah, so it's even, there's a, there's a you know, it's jokingly referred to as twible. Uh, Twitter libel is, is referred to as twible, and, and it's usually treated like written defamation because of the permanence of it. And if that harms someone's reputation, I could be sued. Is that how that you would work? You absolutely could be sued. And so it's, it's good to bear in mind that social media is fun and it has a disinhibiting effect. You feel like you're speaking to someone in your living room, but you are not, in fact, speaking to someone in your living room and you can be sued for what you say. Are there some cases that you think have had a chilling effect or do you think the average uh, user of social media still doesn't really realize that they're opening themselves up to this type of liability? I don't think the average user user fully appreciates the risk. Uh, there are a couple of great cases involving the um, actor and singer uh, Courtney Love. And she twice has been involved. She didn't learn from the first time. Twice has been involved in cases um, of libel on Twitter uh, based on things that looked like kind of extemporaneous speech off the cuff. She accused people of criminality. She accused them of, of taking a bribe and uh, went, to a, went to a jury on that one and ultimately was held not liable on uh, that case. But nonetheless, I think the average user doesn't fully appreciate that they can be responsible for what they say online financially. And what type of penalties could you incur if you were found guilty? Oh, you could be forced to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in damages. And are these civil cases or can it ever the, cross yeah. the line into criminal? 
Oh, okay. That's a, that's an excellent question. Uh, so defamation it involves a civil lawsuit for money damages, but there are other ways people have gotten themselves into terrible trouble online. So, for example, there are teenagers who were making what they thought was a joke threat. They were engaged in hyperbole or banter with a friend. They found themselves arrested and in jail for making a real terroristic threat. Even speech that's protected when it's, you know, that hyperbole is protected by the First Amendment, but even speech that's protected can be read erroneously in the context because it's so um, decontextualized in social media that it pays to be careful that your speech is not being misconstrued in a way that could be, for example, criminal. So something as simple as you're talking to your friends on social media about ways <coughs> to get out of your test at school tomorrow and someone throws out the idea to call in a bomb threat and then that yeah. could get you in trouble? A absolutely. Joking about a bomb threat, you may have no intent of carrying it through, but if you're a teenager joking about a bomb threat to get out of a test... You may find the police knocking at your door and you may find yourself in jail for the night. So civil liability is possible for social media users and criminal liability is possible, too, uh, for various kinds of speech that you might engage in. So what you're saying in your conversation here with Farah is that that freedom of speech is not necessarily entirely free. In fact, we could probably say right. that every every part of the Bill of Rights does have some restrictions on it in terms of absolute freedom. I mean, it's it's always the, there's the famous saying uh, that freedom of speech it doesn't cover, for example, uh, shouting fire in a crowded theater. Well, there's lots of examples in which freedom of speech is not absolutely complete is there are limits that uh, don't allow you to engage in threats, don't allow you to engage in defamatory statements, don't allow for obscenity. And so all of those same limits still apply in social media. So it's free speech and irresponsible speech are two different things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and, and even irresponsible speech that's protected by the Constitution can have terrible consequences for the person engaging in it. Um, there are famous, uh, there's a famous example where a woman was getting on a plane to go to South Africa and she tweeted, I'm on a plane, I'm, I'm headed to South Africa, I hope I don't get AIDS. And by the time she landed, she had her phone shut off while she was in the air. By the time she landed, people met her at the airport telling her what a horrible person she was. She lost her job. Uh, she suffered horrific social consequences from this stupid tweet that she engaged in. So that was protected by the First Amendment, but it nonetheless had a lot of consequences for the person speaking. Now, when it comes to wronging someone through free speech or, or free press, it seems there's kind of a tiered level here because you can you can say things about somebody who is a public figure that you couldn't say about someone who is a common citizen and face some liability issues. Uh, that's correct. So the the First Amendment case law in the Supreme Court gives us a lot more right to criticize our public officials and our celebrities than it does to criticize ordinary people without facing a libel suit. And that's because in a democracy, we as citizens need to be free to criticize those who govern us, govern us and to, to talk about them in, a, in an uninhibited way. And so uh, there's, there are different le levels of protection for public officials than there are for 
private people. Public officials have to have a very, very thick skin because they can be subject to a tremendous amount of criticism that is protected by the First Amendment. Can you give us a little background on how that developed? Because why, why should someone who puts themselves out in public as a public official have to have a thicker skin than somebody who just lives down the street from me? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. So it comes out of a case in 1964 called New York Times versus Sullivan. And that case uh, occurred in the midst of the civil rights movement. There was a, an editorial op-ed in the New York Times uh, criticizing the conduct of a police commissioner in Alabama and the police as they responded to protesters in the civil rights movement. The police commissioner sued the New York Times, claiming that they had defamed him by criticizing the police. And the New York Times said, you know what? If you are the police commissioner, you have to take a tremendous amount of criticism because we as citizens need to be able to scrutinize your activities and to comment on those activities. And a simple mistake in reporting on you is not enough to trigger liability. So the only thing that should trigger liability when you're criticizing a public official is a knowing falsehood or a reckless uh, falsehood. It's called actual malice. The, The technical term for it is actual malice, knowledge or reckless disregard of the truth or falsity of a statement. But at the same time, can't some public officials, or for that matter, some corporation, turn around and sue a person who makes a comment? And, and haven't we seen that used as a topic to silence criticism? Because uh, no matter whether it's true or not. Yeah, certainly that's true. So, so the Supreme Court has, has in, in, its, in its case law on the First Amendment, the Supreme Court has said that public officials have to tolerate a great deal of criticism The problem is it is very hard to win a libel suit if you're a public official, but it is not hard to bring a libel suit if you're a public official. And a libel suit is a very expensive thing for someone to defend. And so the gap between those, how difficult it is to win a suit versus how difficult it is to bring a suit allows powerful people or especially very rich people to sue to silence critics, even if they never expect to win. Can you be temporarily suspended from using your accounts while one of these cases is going on? Is there anything that can prevent you from continuing to communicate? Well, uh, Twitter can suspend your account if they want to. Facebook can suspend their account if they want to. And you really have very little recourse against that because, again, they're not uh, covered by the First Amendment rights. Those are only protected against government restriction. Uh, the government cannot easily silence you pending the outcome of a suit. That, that's what we would call, a, it would be an injunction is what they would seek. But in, in, to say, you know, cut off that account, that itself would be a free speech violation. That would violate the First Amendment to kind of silence you on spec, as it were. Do I have any, any recourse, though, if I'm a private citizen and I get sued by a politician or a major corporation to shut me up? Do I have any recourse to come back to them uh, in, to, to uh, A, regain my freedom, but C, also to, file, to, to recognize this as, as a punitive effort against me? Well, in a lot of states, you do. So, so in almost 30 states now, there are laws called anti-slap law. SLAP is a term that means strategic lawsuit against public participation. 
So if you think somebody is using libel law strategically to silence you, you can assert your rights under this statute, show that the libel statute is basically a frivolous uh, use of libel law. And they, these statutes usually have provisions to get you out of the suit early before you go to trial. And sometimes they, have, uh, they allow you to recover your fees. What happens when government and social media intersect? For example, um, the social media accounts, the official social media accounts of elected officials, um, do they have to be transparent? Do they have to treat that as though they're government records? And um, I know that there's been a lot of debate and even cases over whether a government official, um, whether it be the president or the governor, can block someone from being able to see their accounts. So this issue is being litigated right now in the federal appeals courts, uh, particularly with regard to President Trump. I started writing about government officials blocking their critics in social media in 2010. So long before Trump was on the horizon, I started writing about this topic. No one could envision the use this the sitting president has made of Twitter. But the argument is this. When you open a social media account, that account is by its very nature a forum for interaction between citizens, at least in the comment part of your social media account. So on Facebook, there, there's a comment section. On Twitter, there's a comment section. And if you do that in real space, in physical space, it's called a public forum. And the rule is that the government can't cherry pick which side it wants to hear. If you open the forum, the government must be even handed after it opens the forum. So the argument by extension is that when you open an interactive forum in a social media environment, you can't say, I only want to hear people who praise me, or I only want to hear people who are Democrats, or I only want to hear people who are Republicans. That is a violation of the First Amendment uh, it, 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 when you apply the presence, the precedence from physical spaces into the online space, and those cases are are coming into the federal appeals court, and they're they're starting to come out uh, affirming that you can have an online public forum. But I have seen some some public forums uh, where there are guidelines that the, the the sponsor of this public forum puts on the, the response pages. For example, it says basically, if you're not courteous and if you call people's names and if you're obviously clear out in left field, we reserve the right not to print your response to uh, either the exchange of comments that follow an article or your co- your response to an article. Is that is that censorship on the part of the person who owns that website and says I'm going to limit how how mean and nasty you can be? Well, so these rules, again, these rules only apply if you're talking about a public official. <laughs> and the, the rule from the cases uh, in physical spaces is that the government can set some parameters on the forum. Uh, so they can say, for, so for example, a public university can hold open meeting rooms only for students. They could decide they only want to hold it open for students. Or they could hold it open only for students to talk about university-related topics. And so they can set some parameters. So at the outset, when they open up that space, what they can't do is change the rules to cherry-pick one side or the other. They can't pick a certain viewpoint that they favor and shape the rules of the forum to, to get to you know, 
only only praise of the government official, for example. And most of the lawsuits that are coming up based on this involve government officials who don't like their critics, which is what you'd expect, right? None yeah. of, <laughs> not one of us likes to be criticized. And so it's a natural inclination to say, don't criticize me, I'm going to shut you down. Now, what they probably could do, it hasn't been litigated yet, but you could have an algorithm that said, if I see profanity, I'm going to have an algorithm that takes out the profanity because this is for, you know, for families to come and discuss environmental policy, for example. Let me just be personal for a second. I have a blog and I leave room at the bottom for comments, but I also say um, I'm not going to tolerate rudeness. And if you're going to be rude, you're not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to publish your comment. Am I within or without my boundaries? If, If you're a government official? No, if I'm just me. Oh, if you're you, yeah, block them. (laughs) <laughs> you have no problem with that. But if, if, they're, if they're rude, feel free to block them. I personally, on my accounts, I try not to block people because I think it's very instructive to hear what everybody has to say. I think it's very, I think we, we as citizens tend to put ourselves in little bubbles and talk to like-minded people. So one of the things I truly adore about social media is that I get to hear all kinds of things that I might not hear as often, you know, amongst my self-selected set of friends. On social media, I often see, I, I also like to not block and, and see as many comments as possible, but many times those comments are coming from uh, anonymous sources, if you will, or anonymous individuals, yeah. a, a fake photo, a, a funny name. Um, do you think transparency is important on those platforms or that it adds more credibility or is that within your right to <coughs> offer that criticism or comment behind a mask, from behind a mask? Anonymity is a dual-edged sword. So on the one hand, there's a historical tradition of anonymous speakers. Indeed, some of the founding fathers published under pseudonyms in order to make their arguments. And so it, it protects people who might be discounted because of their status or who might be threatened for speaking out. So there are definitely positive sides to anonymity. But to the extent anonymity makes people feel unaccountable for their speech, it really has a true dark side. It can lead to some some abuses, uh, to harassment of others online. But again, every complex social phenomenon is going to have a positive side and a negative side. People say, isn't social media wonderful? Well, yes, it is. Isn't social media terrible? Yes, it is. Any complex social phenomenon is going to have you. You have to take the bitter with the sweet. As we each try to um, enter this new frontier of social media and the digital age and how we communicate and even communicate globally on these platforms, what advice would you offer to those who are listening when it comes to their own social media use? Well, uh, the advice I'd give you about social media use might be the advice I give you generally is start by asking yourself whether you're being kind. <laughs> and um, I, I'm, I'm kind of being facetious, but, I, but I'm partially not, is remember that you're as accountable for your social media speech as for your speech in real life. And social media encourages us to lose that sense of accountability but the law won't forget uh, what you said, and therefore you can be liable if you're engaged in defamatory speech. You can be liable if you're engaged in incitement, if you're engaged in threat. And lots of people get themselves in trouble because they forget that social media is 
a real space and place. Well, that gets us. That takes us to the whole issue of cyberbullying, bulleting, uh, bullying, because we have seen in recent years a series of laws that attack cyberbullying, and uh, that obviously is a bully thinks that he has he can say almost anything, or she can say almost anything she wants. But the fact is, we do now have laws that limit what people can say when it comes to this topic of cyberbullying. Well, it, it's. I mean, uh, to. To, it's important to know that you may feel anonymous, but if there's an incentive, you can usually be found out. So you can usually be tied to your speech online. Cyberbullying is an important topic it, that uh, started in a, with like the concern over cyberbullying started largely with a high profile case coming out of Missouri um, involving Megan's law. Megan's law involving a team named Megan Meyer who killed herself because she was being bullied by another girl's mother online. So uh, I think the, the most important thing is to remember that speech does have consequences. Speech always has consequences. And those can be legal consequences. They can be social consequences. And it's even more true of social media because it creates a permanent record for things said in haste. And in many ways, I guess, even if you use a pseudonym on the, on, on the internet, you can still be, it's, it can still be tracked back to who the real person is behind that pseudonym. Yes, people can be tracked back to their pseudonym much more easily than they believe they can. I think teens are sensitive to this now. They're increasingly turning to social media that that erase the record of what they've said uh, quickly, like Snapchat. Right. Or the I know Instagram stories leaves it up for only 24 hours. So you instead of having a lifetime record of your teens out there on the Internet, you only have the few things you decide to keep. As the mother of teens, I'm very grateful for this. Uh, but, but even still, you know, 24 hours is 24 hours. There are screenshots. There are ways to create records. Ultimately, you're accountable for whatever you say in social media. Well, there has been some question about Snapchat, especially here in Missouri in the last year or so after, after a governor left office who had been using Snapchat. Is Snapchat something that needs to be regulated or even forbidden? Forbidden? Well, for government officials, uh, any kind of attempt to get around uh, public records law is is troubling. And so using mass using a medium of mass communication to try to avoid your obligations under public records law is troubling. But for other reasons, I mean, I I think that was already encompassed by the public records law. But but uh, for the rest of us, no, I don't think Snapchat needs regulation. You know, there have been times. One time, pretty quickly after the First Amendment was was adopted, that the government has tried to stifle public discussion or public issue, public uh, criticism of government. I, we look, go back to the uh, what 1798 and the Alien and Sedition Acts, and then at, during World War One, we had another um, another Sedition Act that stemmed from the Espionage Act, an effort to control press criticism of the government, especially during wartime. Is that is that permissible, or has that been resolved? The answer is, it has been very clearly resolved that criticism of the government may not be subject to censorship. And that's partly the experience of history that whenever the country is in a time of stress, and particularly when there's a perceived threat to national security, we assert that that justifies new forms of censorship. And most of the times when we look back at those instances, like the Sedition Act of 1798, we're very embarrassed that our first response was try to was to try to censor speech in the name of preserving our security. Um, I think it's important for us all to be students of history so that when the next temptation to say this speech is too dangerous, this is different than speech that ever came before because it's too dangerous. When that next temptation comes along, 
unless you're a student of history, you might succumb to the temptation to censorship. Well, two things spring to mind when we when we lean in that direction. One was the Pentagon Papers case of many years ago, but mm-hmm. more more contemporaneously is WikiLeaks. How does that figure into protecting the security of the country? And and what does what do things like this say about what is permissible and what isn't when it comes to release of information? That that's a really good question. So. Um, in the Pentagon's papers um, case, New York Times versus United States, is a famous case. You had a government a, a government worker who was leaking documents to the New York Times and the Washington Post, and then they got to the Washington Post as well, talking about how we got involved in the Vietnam War. This is someone who became very disgruntled with government policy and therefore leaked those documents to shed light on what was going on that led to our deep involvement in Vietnam. Uh, His name was Daniel Ellsberg, and he actually was prosecuted for leaking those documents. The prosecution had to be dropped because the Nixon administration became so embarrassed uh, by their own corruption and and misdeeds that they had to uh, drop the prosecution. But it's important to distinguish between the role of the newspapers in publishing the Pentagon Papers and the role of the government official who leaked them. That's important to distinguish because um, in the WikiLeaks case, WikiLeaks in some ways looks like the New York Times accepting leaked documents from a disgruntled government employee. So Chelsea Manning uh, gave, then Bradley Manning, Chelsea Manning gave documents to WikiLeaks. In some ways that looks just like the Pentagon Papers case where accepting the leaked documents furthers public understanding of an important uh, an important political issue. The difference is, is that there is an assertion in the WikiLeaks case that Julian Assange assisted uh, then Bradley Manning in cracking into government computers. In the Pentagon Papers case, there was no assistance with hacking or cracking or criminal activity. The New York Times simply accepted the leaked documents. Here, there's much more... Uh, the, the, the Julian Assange's role was much more active, allegedly, based on the facts alleged in the indictment, in getting the information uh, in violation of the law out of government computers. Well, if Manning had given this information to the New York Times, though, instead of to WikiLeaks, would that have been different? Well, so the, the, the question is, if, he'd, if he had simply given the documents to the New York Times, it looks a lot more like Pentagon Papers where you're accepting leaked documents, but then when you choose to publish them, the you're protected by freedom of the press because of the extent to which you further pu- public understanding of an important political controversy. Merely accepting them is not so much the problem. Even Julian Assange's accepted, acceptance of the documents looks like normal journalistic activity. It's being involved with the source to get them in violation of the law. That's a different issue. Being an accessory to violating the law to get the documents is very different than normal journalistic activity. Okay. So if I if I am a new, if I'm a newspaper publisher and somebody brings me stolen documents, then I'm protected under prior restraint. I guess it would be. But well, well, yes. Okay. So so there's a there's a Supreme Court case even after Pentagon Papers called Bartnicki versus Vopper, and they tried to uh, criminally prosecute the reporters for receiving stolen documents, as it were, receiving wrongfully acquired documents. 
And they said, as long as you're accepting those leaked documents, even if you know they were criminally acquired, you may publish them if they are on a matter of, of very important public concern. The reporter is safe as long as they weren't involved in any way in the criminality. But being involved in the criminality of getting the documents is a totally different matter. Makes sense. Yeah, very. That's that's a very important uh, differentiation. We haven't really dug in very far to hate speech, and we we touched on it no. a little bit earlier. But hate speech is another form of speech that is that has gained a lot of popularity, especially because of the internet. And Americans seem to oppose the idea of hate speech uh, significantly. Uh, they they don't they don't want to tolerate it. Is there a way to really flat out ban it, or is this a, just a matter then of also being in the in the public domain and, and the public uh, the public domain basically influences what happens with it? Well, under the First Amendment, you can't flat out ban hate speech. Now, you can ban hate speech to the extent it overlaps with a a category that you can regulate. So you can ban hate speech that happens to be defamation. You can ban hate speech that happens to be a threat, hate speech that happens to be incitement, hate speech that happens to be obscenity. But hate speech is not a legal category for First Amendment purposes. What you're seeing with regard to the giant social media platforms is in some of their policies, they are going after hate speech. And they can do that because they're not restricted by the First Amendment. They're not the government. One other thing I wanted to touch base with you on, Dean. Uh, the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law respecting establishment mm-hmm. of religion or, or speech or press. Can states do it? No. And that's because after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment was adopted. And the 14th Amendment incorporate or it's been held to incorporate the rights in the First Amendment to apply them against the states. And so even though the First Amendment only says Congress, as interpreted together with the 14th, it restricts the states from censorship as well. You've been listening to Is It Legal 2, a podcast service of the Missouri Bar. We're glad to have had Dean Larissa Litsky with us from the University of Missouri School of Law. Thanks for being with us, Dean. It's, it's been good to hear from you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. And you can also connect with her on Twitter at Litsky Litsky. If you're wanting more information on this topic, we invite you to visit MissouriLawyersHelp.org, where you can find lesson plans for Missouri high school teachers on the First Amendment or request a lawyer or judge to come speak to your civic or church group about our rights under the First Amendment. We've been talking about First Amendment rights in today's digital age. It's important to look at how those constitutional rights came to be. Tony Simons, the Missouri Bar's Citizenship Education Director, shares how these rights and liberties stem from our Constitution. Freedom of expression is one of the most important constitutional rights we possess. It is also one of the most misunderstood. Part of the problem is that people confuse things that they would be willing to say with what should be constitutionally protected. On more than one occasion, I have heard someone say, I would never say that in a million years. Therefore, that speech should not be protected by the Constitution. However, the question should not be whether it is something that we would say ourselves. The question is whether we are willing to allow someone else to say it. In the 1978 case involving the American Nazi Party's attempt to march in Skokie, Illinois, Judge Bernard Decker, in ruling for the Nazis, quoted Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, If there is any principle of the Constitution 
that more imperatively calls for attachment than any other, it is the principle of free thought. Not free thought for those who agree with us, but freedom for the thought we hate. Holmes' idea presents the challenge that anyone can extend the protection of the First Amendment to speech they like. But the true test of our commitment to the Constitution is whether we extend that same protection to speech we disagree with. One of the challenges of the First Amendment is that so many cases involve human behavior that can make us cringe. It is tempting to let our distaste for what is said lead us to conclude that such communication is unprotected by the Constitution. This is a temptation our Supreme Court advises us time and again to avoid. If the only speech that will be protected by the First Amendment is speech that is popular or uniformly endorsed, then there is no need for a First Amendment. Such speech is not in jeopardy of restriction. It is the speech that is branded offensive, unacceptable, or dangerous that cries out for constitutional protection. So, you may be wondering, should we just allow horrible things to be said and that's the end of it? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that empowering the government to shut down speech is a dubious precedent, as it is one that will only grow. Maybe next time the speech will be a little less offensive or a little less disturbing, but government's taste for limiting speech will be energized, and it is likely that we will shut down that speech as well. The answer may lie not in shutting down speech, but in fostering additional speech. Justice Louis Brandeis famously wrote in 1927, the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence. Brandeis argued that speech that offends should not be restricted by the government, but rather contradicted by more educated and convincing speech, presenting a differing perspective. It's an application of Justice Holmes' marketplace of ideas. The response to noxious speech is not to allow government to remove an idea from the marketplace. Instead, the answer is to encourage the articulation of an alternative idea that convinces the listener to make a different choice in the marketplace. Everyone loves the idea of freedom of speech in theory, but it gets more complicated when it comes to specific instances of speech. You may have heard someone say, I'm for free speech, just not that speech. Unfortunately, that is not the way it works. It's not like going to the buffet and choosing just the things that look good. For everyone to enjoy freedom, it may be necessary to protect some speech with which we disagree. It is frustrating and unpalatable at times. However, Freedom for what Holmes called the speech we hate ensures freedom for us all. Nothing further, Your Honor. The more you know about the laws that impact your daily life, the better the decisions you'll be able to make about your life, your family, and your finances. I'm Farah Fight. I'm Bob Pretty. Join us for another episode of the Missouri Bars podcast, Is It Legal 2? A regular look at our legal system and you.